Hi, everyone. I'm Jenny, and this is Hyphenated, the podcast about living in the hyphen. And today we have a very special guest. Ajay Kishore is the founder of Starable, the largest community of web series creators and fans building the future of television. Welcome to the show, Ajay. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am honestly so happy that Kevin, who is our producer on Hyphenated, and also a lot of people know him because he's in a lot of my videos as Primo Kevin, and he's worked the film festival circuit for a long time, especially back in Miami, and he's working your festival, which you created, that's going on right now, <laughs> which is why we hear all the people in the background and stuff like that. So I'm glad that Kevin told me about this festival because it's something that I've always kind of wished existed. And the fact that it does <laughs> is amazing. So I want to thank you for that on behalf of content creators everywhere. It's our pleasure. I mean, I, I think that's always the reaction we hope to get. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you can kind of hear the, the festival buzzing behind us. Like that's, I think, you know, one of the rewarding things, like hearing that level of like enthusiasm and energy uh, when we when we hold events like this. So how did this come about? How did you get to this point where you created such a wonderful festival for content creators to be seen by networks and, and creating that bridge. I think the truth, when someone tries to build a startup, the truth is that it, it tends to be like a pretty windy and, and sometimes random road in that, you know, we've been building the company for like six years now, uh, which is always crazy to, to uh, say out loud, but the orientation of the company has always been around this idea of web series as independent television. And that similar to what's happening, what was happening in other forms of digital content creation and in indie film, you know, when we talk about festivals, like what do we think of? We think of indie film. There must be some way to create support and structure and unlock the, the talent and creativity that's happening in this incredibly talented, diverse global community of web series and indie TV creators. And so the very first iteration of the company six years ago, it was kind of during that pivot to video uh, moment when Facebook lied to everyone and said that their video engagement metrics were incredible. And so we needed to make content for it. And so our thinking was, okay, well, how do we drive discovery around all this? Yes, independent content, but also the new media companies that were cropping up, devices, the Verizon uh, Go 90s, the HuffPo's, the Refinery29s. Mm -hmm. And in building that, realized this was a really underserved community. This was definitely an untapped opportunity, but discovery wasn't really something that folks wanted. By and large, you know, people were pretty happy, I think, discovering content on places like YouTube. So we know this is a festival, but it's different from a film festival. And I want to know what exactly goes on at Starable on a day-by-day -day basis. Our thinking was, well, okay, these creators have made pilots or proof of concepts or short form series. And for pretty much all of them, their goal is to make a mainstream television show, right? Their dream is um, what happened with Broad City or Insecure or High Maintenance. Uh, drunk history, workaholics, I, I can keep going on. Mm -hmm. But so there's this need to, as I like to think about, get that conversation that unlocks so many possibilities. And so at the core of the festival, what we've always done is create this industry marketplace where we, you know, we hold a submissions period, we name official selections. And then for those official selections, we create these one-on-one -on -one meetings at the festival with development executives at studios and production companies and networks, managers, agents, 
in order to kind of bridge these two worlds that, you know, Hollywood can be so insular, how do you kind of create this connective fabric so that if you're, if you made this incredible web series, but you've never had a conversation with anyone in the industry because you're based in Berlin or Austin or Sydney, you know, mm. how do you, how do you actually get it in front of the right people? That's, that's always been the vision of the festival. And then around that, you know, we, we create kind of our version of that traditional film festival format. So we do a lot of screenings, right? Like allowing creators to see each other's works, you know, the, the, the venue for the last couple of days has just been buzzing because you see all these filmmakers seeing each other's projects and then walking out of the screenings going, oh my God, did you see what he did with like uh, paper-based animation? And mm. did you see what that person did with how they use miniatures to create a spaceship? And did, oh my God, that joke, it was just so funny. And kind of that extends to how we think about our program. Like we want it to feel like a community where, you know, we have creators come in and talk about the interesting things they did with their projects so that that can be something that you know the community at, at at large can can apply to their next project. Um, we do a bunch of like fun social activities. We just did a 90 second pitch competition where folks get up on stage. 90 seconds is like basically no time, um, but they get 90 seconds to pitch to a panel of industry judges, and then the judges, you know, who have seen thousands of of pitches, go, okay, well, this is what I would love to see more of. This is what I felt like maybe lacked a little bit of of detail. This is something where I could imagine you wanting to like dangle that here so that, you know, they ask more in the room. Um, and then we do an award ceremony um, where we, uh, again, try and just shine a spotlight on uh, all these amazing projects and creators. Oh my gosh. Can you tell us a little bit about the partnerships that you have with networks and how that's grown over the years? To give you a sense, 2019, our second ever festival, we had eight execs taking 20 meetings. And I can guarantee you that it took every ounce of my being to get those eight execs in the room. <laughs> this year, we'll do 60 plus execs taking 250 meetings. Oh my God. It's grown by leaps and bounds. Whoa. And it's grown by leaps and bounds because the content is so good, right? Like execs, they value their time, but they see this as being good business because they know that diverse up and coming talent are good business, but they just need it made accessible to them, right? And I think that's what we've, as a festival, really tried to focus on. And so as we've built this reputation and this credibility, I think, we've tried to find other ways to act as that sort of connective fabric, right? Because, you know, for the first four years of the festival, we were doing one time a year. Well, the industry is looking for talent and content year round. And especially, I think, during, during two years where we couldn't even host an in-person festival, we were like, okay, well, yeah. how do we go back to the drawing board and think about other ways that we could, like, create these meaningful conversations? So... Last spring, AMC Networks has been this incredible um, sponsor of the festival for the last three years. And even the AMCs, you think of it as this huge organization, they can't compete dollar for dollar with the Netflixes and the Disneys of the world. So how do they find other places where they can find these, you know, diamonds in the rough, right? And help develop and, and polish them so they can continue to create such amazing content. And so we created a, a first look initiative where we could give them regular access to the best projects that we were coming across and have that go directly to their development teams. And that was kind of our first formal industry partnership. And then we got connected to the Roku channel mm. and Roku last year, they bought Quibi Slate yeah. and rebranded Roku Originals. And, you know, they were kind of at a moment where they wanted to do more original content. They were also kind of like scaling up their team. They were trying to be creative about it. 
And when we showed them the projects that we're working with, they were like, oh, that's, that's super interesting. What if we were to license some of these projects, put them in front of our audience, see how our audience resonates with it, and then potentially de-risk what it means to create those as Roku originals. And so from that conversation, we originally licensed 15 of our official selections, and we've continued to send them along as our, as our creators of express interest. And we're now up to 30 projects licensed to the Roku channel. The first batch actually became available in the beginning of March, and we should have another 15 projects available in the next like month or so. So I know that you started your career in finance. So it's really interesting because I want to know what got you so passionate about content creation and television. I don't think 10 years ago, I expected to find myself here in, in so many ways. But I spent eight or nine years in, in finance, uh, and I think for the last couple of them, I, I find myself kind of wanting to feel like I was building something. You know, finance, I, I think, is oftentimes a little bit, you know, arm's length removed, analytical, and I was much more around like, oh, I want to feel like I'm creating something. I want to mm-hmm. feel like I'm actually like involved in something. And I also, I just genuinely love television. It is my favorite art form. I think it, like I've lived in New York for 15 years and I strongly suspect that it's because I just watched so much Seinfeld as a kid and it just <laughs> seeped into my blood. And so, you know, I came across that idea of web series. I kind of stumbled upon I was sitting at my finance shop six years ago, reading this Time Out New York article, the top 50 web series. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, there was just this kind of like, light bulb moment of what the hell is a web series Mm. and then I started to watch some of the content that was in the article and by and large I had not seen or heard of the projects but they were all really well done right the writing the acting the production value and then sometimes I would like click over they'd be hosted on places like YouTube or something like that and be like what they don't have the audience that I would expect given how good they are Mm -hmm. and why are not people not talking about them more And then I was like, well, but this is independent television. And, you know, why isn't there this opportunity to kind of springboard from digital content and independent television to mainstream television? From that, I remember having a dinner with one of my best friends and, you know, asked him about like, okay, what is it? What do you think about this idea of indie TV? And he was like, oh, that's that's super interesting is, is no one like building in that space? And we started like looking mm-hmm. at, you know, are there platforms? We didn't really find anything. What would we call this company? Is that URL available? <laughs> and it became literally a year of nights and weekends where, you know, by the end I was spending every possible free hour working on this company because I was really excited about the idea of what it could be. And I found myself at this point where I was just like, I have no more free hours to give. I have to quit my day job because otherwise I'm just going to wonder for the rest of my life what this could be. Holy shit. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, it seems like that definitely was your calling and it seems to be working out super well, but I'm also not surprised because I've always known that this is the future of media. I remember I was a personal assistant to Kevin Feige on a Marvel film <laughs> back when <laughs> I still have his number on my cell phone. It's very weird. And hearing these two old white guys being like, yeah, you know, YouTube is the future. And I was like, it better be because that's what all I'm doing. 
as someone like myself who's been creating content for the internet for over 10 years, as a Cuban-American who makes culturally specific content and bilingual content, I think that's what I love about what you're doing because a lot of diverse storytellers have a spotlight on them finally. I have worked with Facebook. I have worked with Instagram. I have worked with YouTube. I've been to the YouTube headquarters. Basically, I was hired to do a lot of testing and meet with all these execs and all these people in different departments, especially in, in YouTube, to, to give them notes and feedback. And we had people from France and Brazil and India. And a lot of us were just like, hey, um, when it comes to our content, because it's so culturally specific, like we're not being discovered. So if you type in Latino comedy on YouTube, you're gonna get a bunch of George Lopez clips. You're not going to get Latina comedians like me with our sketches. A lot of the content that I produce is like, I put everything into it. I have a very loyal fan base, but I'm not as big as one would expect. And so that's why for the longest time, I always kind of wished for a festival like this. Oh my God. I have so much <laughs> I want to say. And I should have said this about like why I'm so excited about like what we're building and why I have been, uh, you know, was so eager to like jump into this is, you know, when I started looking at web series, I realized that the people that were making web series, they were coming from the communities that were not able to break into television, right? Because mm -hmm. there's no gatekeepers to who can create content. This is a really exciting moment, right? Because historically that's not been true, but you can mm -hmm. make on your iPhone, you can edit on your laptop, software is accessible. It's, it, the cost has come down dramatically female filmmakers, the people of color, the LGBT+, the disability community, they're, they're, they're creating such interesting TV, mm -hmm. but discovery is still not happening, right? No. Um, and, and it's because, you know, there's a lot happening within that YouTube algorithm, but it's yeah. not necessarily surfacing what we think of as like true filmmaking quality or, you know, um, craft, right? Yeah. And I think that was a frequent question that we get in the early days of the company is like, well, can I just go on YouTube and like look for things that have a lot of views? And it's like, things have a lot of views on YouTube for a lot of different reasons, <laughs> but you can't, if you're making a really high quality indie TV show, mm -hmm. doing what, six episodes, 10 episodes, you're not, you're not able to, what YouTube tells you about like rising to the top, you're not able to really achieve. So I feel like I'm part of a generation where like I grew up consuming entirely white television. Yep. It was black television. It was, it was yes, it was the closest we all had. <laughs> um, and I consumed a lot of black television growing yeah. up. And I, I don't think that I fully internalized as a kid, like why I was so drawn to that. Yes. But the vast majority of TV was super white. And I find it really weird that I can do this, but I have a very distinct memory of the first time that I ever saw an Indian person on TV that wasn't like a stereo, like the point wasn't that they were Indian. I was in college, mid 2000s, and it was a shampoo commercial. Wow. And it was an Indian woman just like tossing her hair. And it's like, yeah, we have nice hair, but you know, <laughs> you'd think that we would be able to like have other roles within content by the by 2005 2006 mm -hmm. so you know we're starting to see the cracks in the industry yes. but we're still really not where we need to be what we try and make so easy for the industry that comes to our festival is like here here are diverse creators these projects are incredible and the voices are diverse and you would now have zero excuses just yeah. go <laughs> and prosper by working with these 
with these incredible talents? Because I mean, we have we have stats around like the stable community. It's forty eight percent female. It's thirty six percent people of color. It's wow. LGBT. So, you know, we have this ability to kind of surface these incredible voices. Now we're just like, well, how do we get them that next step? Yeah, because I I would love to know your thoughts about this, because over the years, I'm in this weird place, right, where I've been creating content all this time that's gotten me attention. It's gotten me actual gigs on TV and voice acting and all that. And I've had meetings with networks and I have, you know, I have connections now with like showrunners and stuff. So it's, it's put me in a place where I'm still in this almost limbo because it seems like content creators are kind of taken seriously, but not really. So I've noticed that sometimes there are TV shows that will take ideas from internet content creators. I've seen it happen. It's happened to me. It's happened to other friends of mine who go viral, who have been making really successful internet content for their respective communities. And then suddenly they see the same exact jokes and memes and and trends on a TV show. And so within my circle of people that, you know, again, content creators, we always talk about this. We're like, how come it's that we're not taken seriously enough? There's a lot of gatekeeping. There's a lot of, oh, well, you need to have three years of writing experience to be staffed. Or are you really trained though? And not that you have to be, but I went through film school. I did professional theater. <laughs> and for some reason, you start making content on the internet and it gets eyeballs on you. But then people are like, well, they're not for real. They're not that qualified. They need to go the traditional way for me to grant them a job, whether it's like as a staff writer or even as an actor, or give them a show. They like us enough to steal our ideas, but not give us jobs. So for the last couple of years, we've done this like series of conversations called Meet the Showrunner. For web series creators, like they're oftentimes positioning themselves to be a TV showrunner, right? That's the goal. Yeah. But most people outside of the industry have never even heard that term. Like I'll use that with my girlfriend and she'll be like, what is a showrunner? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> is that a producer? Is that a writer? Is that a director? And it's, it's so opaque. And so we bring in these folks. We've had Chris Brancato of Narcos. We've had mm. uh, Jeff Rake of Manifest. Uh, yesterday, we interviewed Ellen Rappaport of, of Minx on HBO Max. And certain patterns emerge. And I think one is that Hollywood is so relationship-driven that the way that people get jobs and the way that people get opportunities is by you know, passing each other projects or potentially hiring each other and so you need that person where you can if you've written a script you can call up your you know the friend that you've known for 15 years that's at Lionsgate and say hey Mm -hmm. would you be willing to take a look at this and you know have them float it to their boss and, and see what's possible and so you know if you're if you're a digital content creator you don't necessarily have that network, right? And I think it's also uh, it, the reality is like that's that's why these like these generational shifts take so long is that you have to come up, but also your peers have to come up to yeah. the point where you know you have that person to call to to o- potentially open that door for you. Yeah, and I and I think that just makes it so inertial, right? Like uh, how. How, how do we get that to happen until, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And that feels so incredibly slow and unacceptable. Yeah, and especially because when it comes to people of color and minorities in general, not all of us were 
privileged enough to be able to like just sit at a coffee shop all day and write scripts and film things 24 seven and not have to work one to three jobs. <laughs> right. So that's also an issue I see with gatekeeping where it's like, I think that's why so many amazing web series and ideas and characters are coming from the LGBTQ plus community from female filmmakers, from POC filmmakers, disabled filmmakers, because a lot of us didn't have the privilege to just move to LA and have our parents pay for our rent. And we can just sit around all day and work solely on what we want to do. I came out here and I immediately had to work at um, BuzzFeed, which is, I was still extremely lucky in that regard, right? Because I was ready to do anything, whether it was wait tables or, you know, be the Nesquik bunny again. But, you know, but I started from the bottom. I was an intern and I was 28. So I was still one of the oldest interns at a place like BuzzFeed where everyone just fucking sang Taylor Swift songs all day. Uh, and I was just like, I'm fucking old. But I had to like go through the system. And I remember meeting with like certain showrunners and networks who started seeing my content because it would go viral on BuzzFeed and a lot of the characters I started to do. So people started to take notice, but then they're like, where are your scripts? Where are your five pilots? And I'm like, I don't have time because I have to make 40 viral videos a day. <laughs> but it's like, isn't that the proof that I can write, that I can resonate with an audience, that I can make people laugh? But they're like, no, no, you need to have all these scripts under your belt. So I would get so close to getting hired or staffed on a show. But then the moment they realize, oh, she doesn't have all these credentials because she's working her ass off to pay her bills. <laughs> it's, it's a no-go. And that happens to a lot of us. So I think I want to be in the position one day where I just bring people on board. And I've seen things changing. I do know people showrunners or people in positions of power have gotten people their first staff job without them having all this experience. So I grew up in Maryland and I think I was probably like 25 before I realized that there were people making TV. Like that was a job that you could have. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know, my parents are scientists. My sisters are doctors. Like that, that was the framework that I was operating under finance was even like weird in this construction of like what was possible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you, if you don't come up within a, a community that's like also producing other people that are going into the industry, you don't have peers and, and you also don't know to your point, like what's expected, right? So mm -hmm. you have a pitch, but do you need outlines? Do you need a deck? Do you need scripts? And those things also, I think, change based on, you know, how you are introduced. Who is the relationship that got you in the door, right? Like I read something yeah. about how Lena Dunham sold girls off of a one-page outline. And, you know, she had a film, Tiny Furniture. It was, it was good, but one-page outline is, is a surprising <laughs> low bar considering, you know, what I know of like the development and the pitching process and mm -hmm. what you hear about what is asked of other creators. And so you do have to find yourself wondering, like mm -hmm. if there was a black woman walking into that development executive's office, are they still asking for that one page outline? And if yeah. uh, you know that creator, their parents aren't famous artists, like eh, are, they, are they still asking for that one page outline? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think those are the conversations where we need to be honest. Like I genuinely think Girls is a very good show. 
But what happened with girls was they paired her with Judd Apatow and they said, hey, we think that you have this really interesting talent. And here is a you know, more established producer, a steady hand who can make sure that, you know, you're able to deliver us the content that we're paying for, which makes sense, right? Yeah. But how many other up and coming voices could benefit from that sort of like mentorship or apprenticeship and they just don't get the chance? And why are they not getting that chance? And that's the thing that kind of drives me up the wall and where I think that there's an opportunity. My thinking is, well, if I just put my shoulder into it, we should be able to create some opportunities and start to crack this door open a little wider. I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. I I'm going to spread the word. You know? <laughs> like I'm going to make sure all my friends enter next year because I know so many talented people with fantastic ideas and stories, and I've seen them struggle. There's no way in hell they would be able to sell anything with an outline. <laughs> we're, we're told to go film the whole damn thing sometimes. Like, well, you know, the script isn't enough. Can you show us? Because they don't understand, especially if it's identity-based content and there is just like old white dudes. Like, they don't know. If they read the script, they're going to just be so confused. So you have to go the extra mile a lot of times just to prove yourself worthy and that your stories are worthy. And that was even the case when we were at BuzzFeed. You would think a company like BuzzFeed that's so progressive, right, on the outside would be super chill about creating Latino content, that wasn't the case at all. <laughs> I mean, we're drowning in data yeah. about how diverse content is better. It is just good business practice, right? Yeah. Which to me is helpful because, you know, I think there is like a moral and ethical obligation to make content that is reflective of society. But also these streamers, these networks, these production companies, these studios, they are businesses. They care about the bottom line. Yeah. And so... If you're telling me like, okay, the data shows that diverse voices are going to be more profitable, they're able to produce something cheaper, they will have a bigger impact, they have a more established audience that you can appeal to, then let's get to it, right? But I think there's still frequently this framing of what is the neutral audience or what is the mm -hmm. like lowest common denominator and it's still straight white people. Which, and uh... so a white executive is reading a script and going, well, this doesn't resonate with me. So I know I'm... why, who's, <gasps> who's going to watch this? And it's like, well, it's not fucking for you. And that's, I know. that's the point, right? But that's also why I think it's so frustrating because it's kind of like the tide just needs to rise in that the creators need to be more diverse, but also the executives need to be more diverse. I know without that. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it feels chicken and egg. I see it happen specifically to Latino creators in terms of watering down our stories. And then when they fail, networks are like, you see, Latino shows don't do well. I'm like, they don't do well because the creator shows up with a dope ass story that's super authentic and real. And then you go in there and try to essentially whitewash it because you're afraid other people aren't going to get it. And then the show doesn't last past a season. I'm not surprised. So we we interviewed Ellen Rapport of, of Minx yesterday. Mm -hmm. And in preparation, I was watching the show, which is great. And I've been talking to people about it. And it seems like everyone has the same story, which is their mom has brought it up in conversation and been like, oh my God, have you seen this show? Mm. It's about second wave feminism in 1970s California and it has a ton of male frontal nudity. And to me, what's interesting is like, I probably wouldn't have predicted either that women of an older generation would find this show so compelling, but they do, right? And so that was a missing opportunity mm. that 
is again to go back to it really good business and so if we had older female executives who understood what would appeal to that audience which is probably massive and underserved then we could be getting a lot more interesting content mm-hmm. and so you know there's there's a certain part of like well why are we always the ones that have to like trudge up the hill for 10 years in order to make this incredible thing that is a global phenomenon why don't we get the shot a little bit earlier in our career or you know get the benefit of the doubt even but that's what's great about content creators is that i am on the ground floor every day with this audience i know what they want we know our people we know what does well what doesn't do well and at this point personally i know what most Latino audiences want to see. And I know exactly why sometimes Latino shows fail. And obviously it's it's just really tragic, but that's why I think Sterable is freaking awesome because it's giving content creators the opportunity to showcase themselves as like, hey, we know what we're doing. <laughs> like we're good at storytelling and wearing multiple hats. Imagine what we could do with money. Imagine if they're given the opportunity to, to have a network you know, behind it. I mean, I think it's just about like, what's the right audience for your content? And, you know, what's the right distribution mechanism for your content? And mm-hmm. what's accessible to digital creators is the online platforms because there are fewer gatekeepers, but mm-hmm. what might be right for their content is like more traditional television. More traditional, yeah. And so like that, you know, as much as I think that word of, of you know, democratization gets thrown around a lot. But the truth is that a lot of things aren't really still democratized. Yes. I mean, that's what like really motivates us is how do you actually make it so that this creator who has created this incredibly compelling pilot on a shoestring budget, and it's just so unique and innovative and beautiful and funny, like how do you get them that sort of opportunity to imagine what it would be like? as a mainstream Mm -hmm. show and to have the sort of mentorship and the funding and the resources to create what could be like a really beautiful, wonderful TV show. (laughs) Ultimately television is a, is a business. um, And and so I think it's, it's always, you're trying to find that like balancing act between art and capitalism. Right. And I think Mm. too often it's too far in the direction of capitalism when it could be, much more, you know, artful and crafted. So, because I'm kicking myself for not having known about this sooner and not entering this year, <laughs> when is going to be the next terrible? How can people enter? What are some future plans? So this year we're actually, we're hosting two festivals. So right now we're hosting our LA festival and in October, we're going to be hosting our New York City festival. And we are actually open for submissions for our New York City Festival. Uh, If you go to stairwell.com or if you find us on Film Freeway, filmfreeway.com slash stairwellfest, you can submit your project. And then in July, we'll we'll announce our official selections. And then uh, in October, we'll host what hopefully will be another amazing festival. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome that you're doing it also in New York. That's amazing. I mean, this is our fifth year of running the festival but this is our we we have the last two years have been virtual Mm -hmm. and it's really there's just a level of of energy and excitement with people getting kind of meet in person and i think bringing that back to new york city which is 
I think of it as the home of, of CerboFest. I think it's going to be really awesome and uh, really fulfilling for everyone. Well, that's incredible. Well, thank you again so much for being here with us today. And I am walking away feeling very inspired and hopeful. I think hope is the key word here. Hope is the key word. <laughs> because someone, someone like you sees the worth in content creators. And on behalf of all content creators, I just can't thank you enough because I do think this is the future of, of TV. Amen. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Thank you again for having me. This has been an awesome, it's been an awesome conversation. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is great.